0: Well, good morning, everyone. If God is so good, why is there evil and suffering? And why doesn't he stop it? That's our topic today. And yes, indeed, we'll be opening up the scriptures, and yet in a topical way, and it's, I tell you, it's a great privilege to be part of this series on the big questions. Thank you for including me. Um, I have a friend who, whose name is Rick Mumford. He and Amy had, have three sons. They got to visit by the highway patrol three years ago announcing that their oldest, Mac, had died. How did he die? He took his own life. Questions like this, why does God allow this? If either parent had been there, they would have stopped him. Was God there? Then why didn't he stop it? Of all the questions that I get, and we get a lot of questions, all the questions you get too. How many of you have had, have, have had this question? First of all, how many of you asked this question yourself and maybe are still asking it? If God's a loving, powerful God, why did bad things happen? How many of you have been asked this question by someone? This is still like the number one question. Um, and, and today, as we go through this topic, I'll tell you in a minute kind of what we're gonna talk about. But when you think of what's going on right now in Israel and Gaza, And right now in Maine with 22 dead after this shooting, the shootings. Um, What about when a a daughter asks after she is attacked in a park, where was God? Daddy, if you'd been there, you would have stopped it. If God was there, why didn't he? As you see pictures of suffering people, this last one here is the... um, A picture of one suffering in Gaza, in the Gaza Strip right now. The ones you saw prior to that are from Ukraine, children especially. And that probably is the content of the question most often to me is, why does God allow children to suffer? Suffering is hard to understand. And that's just the truth. It's hard to understand. Um, what the irony is, I think we as believers, because we have a biblical understanding of what's been revealed by God about the meaning of human history, we can actually answer the question, why does suffering happen in general? But it's tough to answer the question, why did this particular child get leukemia? Why did this son take his own life? That is, that is really tough, and it's hard to understand. Um, I want to tell you, uh, before we go to the next slide, I want to tell you that we've got kind of five topics going on here. Uh, see if I can remember them because they're, 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 they're not on the slide. We're going to talk about some alternative solutions to this. How, for instance, atheists and others answer this question. Um, and we'll also look at the question, uh, does God care? Does he, does he care or not? And then we'll ask, what is the cause of evil and suffering from a biblical point of view? Will that be interesting? And we'll also ask the question, why doesn't he stop it? And finally, the fifth is, we know that the story's not over. We're in the third act of a four-part drama, and knowing that is a great comfort. There is a classic statement of the problem, and you've probably heard it. Sometimes when people ask this question in a group, I'll say, do you mean something like this? And uh, the first part is, if there's a loving God, he would want to get rid of evil, right? Does that make sense? If he's a loving and a good God, he would want to get rid of evil. If there's an all-powerful God, he could get rid of evil, right? But evil exists. So therefore, there is no loving, all-powerful God. Or there's a God, but he's not loving, though powerful. Or he's loving, but not powerful. This last one is a very popular view. There's a man who has received five, according to Wikipedia, which of course we all trust, uh, five um, honorary doctorates from different institutions. He's a best-selling author, and many times when this question comes up, somebody will say, have you read this great book called When Bad Things Happen to Good People? How many of you heard that book, written by Harold Kushner? Uh, a rabbi who just passed away in April of this year, by the way. Um, maybe God is loving but not all powerful. Now, that's his conclusion. Now, this man, um, Harold and his wife, had a son named Aaron who was diagnosed with a very rare neurological disorder, a disease called progeria. It's a particular kind of premature aging disease. And so they saw their little infant son. Um, age right before their eyes, lose his hair, lose his ability to, to, um, to do regular things, getting weaker and weaker, and he died at age of 14 looking like a 98-year-old man. And he got some pretty wacky counsel and, and supposed comfort, kind of like Job from his friends. So he wrote this book, and I think the re- one reason people love it is because it's so empathetic. But here's, here's a conclusion. I'm going to all read this to because I know it's hard to read on the screen. Are you capable of forgiving and loving God even when you have found out that he is not perfect? Even though he has let you down and disappointed you by permitting bad luck and sickness and cruelty in his world and permitting some of those things to happen to you? Can you learn to love and forgive him despite his limitations as Job does? And yet as you once learned to forgive and love your parents? even though you were, they were not as wise, as strong, or as perfect as you needed them to be. So basically he says, says can you forgive God because he's not perfect, he has limits. Anything wrong with that? Well, One thing is, uh, well there's lots wrong with it, it's not biblical, it's, it's not biblical, but you can see what comfort it might bring. He says, he says when God does, does not cause suffering, and cannot stop it. I can worship a God who hates suffering but cannot eliminate it more easily than I can worship a God who chooses to make children suffer and die for whatever exalted reason. There are some things God cannot prevent. That's how he finishes the book. And I wonder if when people read it, do they really catch this at the end? Because it makes God finite. And there are some obviously problems with it. If, if God is If God is... Uh, limited in his power. How do we know that evil will not win in the end? How could we have any hope? If evil is more powerful, if suffering can't be stopped, he has no power over it, then what kind of hope is there? And it's certainly counter to the biblical story, isn't it? And why should we think that God will win in the end? And if, notice this, this is kind of the premise. If I don't know God's reasons, for allowing suffering and evil, is it wise to conclude that there is no reason? Here's another common conclusion, there is no God. And so, you know, I have atheist friends, atheist family family members who believe there's no God. And you know, uh, popular writers like Bart Ehrman, who are experts in textual criticism, New Testament textual criticism, they're experts in New Testament Greek studies, for instance, and he's an atheist. The prime reason he's an atheist is not because of Biblical reasons, it's because of this problem. That's what I believe and others would say. And he wrote a book on evil and suffering and says that. Bertrand Russell, famous atheist, British, uh, brilliant, probably genius level, very popular, was an atheist. And his reason for doubting was also this problem. Wrote a book called Why I'm Not a Christian. So this, this conclusion has two assumptions, one is, Uh, Maybe you've caught that because God has not rid the world of evil. He never will So if if it's the case that there is evil right now, then it means that there always will be but is that true? And another assumption is if I can see no reason therefore there is no reason just like Harold Kushner's if I can't see a reason for evil and suffering therefore there is no good reason Do you follow that does that make sense? that we kind of catch that fallacy, if I don't see the reason why there's evil and suffering in the world, then certainly God doesn't have a reason that I don't know. That's kind of, wow, how much smarter is God than we are, right? Notice these things too. They place a high value on human beings. We had a discussion last, just last week at the open forum, is why should human beings be considered valuable? I asked them, if you, considered, if you destroyed all the algae in the oceans, That would hurt the planet a lot more than if you destroyed all the human beings on planet Earth. Right? Human beings are the problem. Pollution, wars, right? Wrecking the ecosystem. So why are human beings valuable? And it's hard to answer if there's not a valuer, with a capital V, God. Who places the price tag on you? Why are you valuable? If you're not useful, are you valuable? And useful to whom? So they're kind of assuming that human beings, when they suffer, if a a lion kills a gazelle in Africa, we don't arrest the lion. Why do we arrest the person who kills his neighbor? What's the difference? Why are human beings innately valuable? It's a question that they have to answer and, and really cannot without God. Number two, they think these things like horrors of war, slaughter of babies, et cetera, are bad, really bad, but bad compared to what? They don't seem to be arguing from just their personal opinion but from a universal moral standard. Do you see that? They're saying this is evil, this is bad, but bad compared to what? How do you know? How do you know it's bad? If there's no God, then there's no absolute basis for their complaint. They can't say this is wrong, that is, using some standard outside ourselves that applies to everybody. They're just saying, I don't like it. So, should it be just opinion-based? C.S. Lewis in The Problem of Pain, and I'll read this, to you so you don't have to strain your eyes. He says, my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust, but how had I got the idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? Of course, I could have given up my idea of justice by saying it was nothing but a private idea of my own, but I didn't, but I, But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too. For the argument depended on saying the world was really unjust, not simply that it did not happen to please my fancies. So if you're saying this is an unjust war, this is an unjust policy, that was a cruel, unjust thing, compared to what? How do you say it's a crooked line unless there's such a thing as a straight line? That's his his good point. So their argument is, if God exists and God allows suffering, then there must be a good reason for it. I don't see any good reason for it. Therefore, there is no God. That's kind of how it goes. I don't see the reason for it, so there's no God. Or God is not all-powerful. They assume that if there's a good reason for suffering, they would know it too. And because they don't know it, there isn't one. Tim Keller in Reason for God says, Tucked away in the assertion that the world is filled with pointless evil is a hidden premise, namely that if evil appears pointless to me, then it is pointless. If it, evil appears pointless to me, then it is pointless. If you have a God, I love this, and I, this is worth memorizing. It's a wonderful statement. Listen to it carefully. Keller says, If you have a God great and transcendent enough to be mad at because he hasn't stopped evil and suffering in the world, then you have at the same moment a God great and transcendent enough to have good reasons for allowing it to continue that you can't know. Does that make sense? If your God is big enough to complain to that he doesn't stop suffering, then he's big enough also to have reasons for it that we just don't know. Sometimes suffering has purpose, right? You do your homework for a purpose. You floss your teeth for a purpose. You practice the piano for a purpose. You go to basic training for a purpose. A lot of suffering has a, has a purpose. Now, because we can't see a purpose for sufferings like wars and children's suffering, um, therefore, to conclude that therefore it, there is no good reason is the point here. Is it possible that God has a reason for it? That if we knew it ahead of time, if we knew it, that we wouldn't have this argument. I'm not sure we're capable of knowing it, but is God? I think so. Think of this uh, little kitten here. Pretty cute, huh? Imagine the, uh, what's going on inside this little kitten's heart as, as he's at the veterinarian, and uh, what are these people doing to me? They're taking me for, for, for n- no good reason, and this place that smells of dogs and birds and other strange cats and people, people that I know, chemicals, you know, they're smelling all this, they're hearing the sounds, they're placed on this steel, cold cabinet, and then they get a shot right in the butt. And they think, this is hell. And, you know, if any of you, how how many of you parents have taken your own little kids for shots? Raise your hand. And, of, of course, your infant looked at you with trusting, kind eyes, Right? There are some things we just don't know and can't understand. There's another way for this logic to go. So remember that kind of syllogism, if, then? Well, here's another way for it to go. If there is a loving God, he would want to get rid of evil. True, right? If there's an all-powerful God, he could get rid of evil. Evil exists now, or you could say evil still exists, therefore, what's the conclusion? someday he will get rid of evil and suffering. And that's, in fact, what the Bible says. Therefore, someday God will get rid of evil and there must be a good reason for him to wait. To judge God, Philip Yancey, now this book I recommend. You can read the Harold Kushner book that I had on the screen if you'd like, just to understand what people are reading. This one is actually, to me, a wonderful book. To judge God solely by the present world will be a tragic mistake. At one time, it may have been the best of all possible worlds, but surely it is not now. The Bible communicates no message with more certainty than God's displeasure with the state of creation and the state of humanity. I remember back, uh, what, 20, when when was the kinetic shooting at uh, Sandy something elementary school, remember that? Some 20 people were killed then too. And there had been a whole bunch of terrorist killings and everything all around the world, the Middle East and Europe during that time. But here was one on our own soil. And boy, the the emotion that came and the questions, where is God? And the thought occurred to me that God is up there saying, where have you been? I thought you'd never ask. This is awful. God has been grieving for millennia over the way the world is right now. He knows that it's not the best possible world. He knows this, and sometimes it's a wake-up call when we see what's happening in the world, and I think we're getting a sense, we're empathizing, I think, with the heart of God. When Jesus healed the, the deaf person and, and said the Aramaic phrase, "Ephratha," open, it said before that, he said, and he had a deep sigh, a deep sigh, and I think what he, I don't know, it was either a groan or a sigh, translated both ways, but I think what he was d- dealing with was the fact that, ah, uh, Another Yet another sign of a fallen, broken planet. A person that's given the privilege of hearing that's never heard. Jesus empathized with, empathizes with this. God empathizes. God knows there is a problem. He cares. He has acted, is acting, and will act to get rid of evil. He has never been uninvolved. And how do we know? How do we know this? I'm going to tell two ways. First of all, the Bible itself. Um, I'm sure you could tell me how many chapters are in the Bible, 1189, right? Everybody knows that. Now you do, 1189 chapters in the Bible. 66 books, 1189 chapters, that's a lot. But only four don't have the presence of sin in them. Which ones are those? The first two and the last two, right? That's right. So you think all those pages in between It's dealing with the problem of evil and suffering. So Genesis 1 and 2 and then Revelation 21 and 22. In Genesis chapter 3, evil and suffering enter the world and the rest of the Bible is about how this problem of evil and suffering is addressed and defeated. That's the story of the Bible. The Bible is the story of God's battle with evil by his faithful covenant love through imperfect patriarchs, priests, kings, judges, and prophets. Does God care about the problem of evil and suffering? Literally, he wrote the book on it. He cares about it more than we do. And he sent his son. Probably the strongest reason to know that God cares. If God didn't care about suffering in the world, he would have never sent his son to die. Right? Does not that make sense? If we could get to God by being good, if we were just um, good people that needed to be better or bad people that needed to be good, and if we could be good and therefore earn that right to heaven, why would Christ need to die? The problem wasn't that we were good needing to be better, we were dead and needed to be alive. We were alienated from the life of God, from God himself. So the cross is a great picture of how God cares. At the cross, the righteous judge died as if guilty of all human evil so that we who are actually guilty could be declared righteous forever. Isn't that amazing? There's no story on earth like this. This is the only one, the only religious system that says God cares this much. Some systems don't even have a God at all. Theravada Buddhists don't believe in God. Most Buddhists don't talk about God. They may talk about gods, but not the God. And if there's a God, as in Islam or Judaism, then how do you get to God? By a moral life, by obeying certain principles, the five pillars or the Torah, the law of Moses. But Christianity is the only one that said God came down and did something for us. If we again ask the question, Tim Keller writes, why does God allow evil and suffering to continue? And we look at the cross of Jesus, we still do not know what the answer is. He does, but we don't. However, we now know what the answer isn't. It can't be that he doesn't love us. It can't be that he is indifferent or detached from our condition. God takes our misery and suffering so seriously that he was willing to take it on himself. That's a story that's unique across the the face of the earth. That's why it's called good news. It's not good advice. It's good news. It's something God has done for us. The message of Christianity isn't be like Christ. It's that you need Christ. You need Christ. The only qualification for becoming a Christian is to know that you're not qualified. That's beautiful, isn't it? None of us are qualified. That's why he came. So, Keller goes on, if we embrace the Christian teaching that Jesus is God and that he went to the cross then we have deep consolation and strength to face the brutal realities of life on earth. We can know that God is truly Emmanuel, God with us, even in our worst sufferings. Jesus, the Son of God, the only perfect mediator, stepped into the evil world, took evil onto himself, and at the cross defeated the power of evil and will come again to eradicate the effects of evil. Now that's quite a lot in that last part. He got rid of the power of evil in his first coming, and we'll get rid of all the effects of evil in his second coming. And that's what we're going to talk about. But in the meantime, we can experience his loving presence now. It's amazing. Johnny Erickson was asked, you know, Johnny Erickson was the young woman who, at the age of 15, I think, maybe 14, dove into Chesapeake Bay and and broke her neck, severed her spinal cord, and has been a quadriplegic her whole life. She has some motion now in one hand. She can drive, for instance. She's an amazing author, amazing speaker. And and her life, qualitatively, she thought was awful and wanted to die, but didn't have the ability, couldn't even commit suicide. But she learned to know God. She learned to know the presence of God. And in the process, has had incredible ministry to people. But she would say the best part is the relationship she has with God, the intimate relationship she has with her Savior. And if she were asked, she said, if I were asked today, if God gave me a choice of re- rerunning the, the whole film again and doing it one of two ways, Johnny, I will give you, a, no accident, I will give you full use of your body for your whole life or you can have what, what has been given to you and what you derived from, from this accident. And she said, I'll keep the wheelchair. She paints with a brush and pencil in her mouth. She's so, she's so in love with Christ. She knows him. Our bodies are all going to fail, folks. And what we have with Jesus lasts forever and ever. The brotherhood that you have here right now is more eternal than the brother you have with, have with your sisters and brothers right now, or your mom and dad. This family of godness that we share right here you are my brothers and sisters. It's that way for eternity. Isn't that amazing? That we're in this family forever, and we have that. And, we're, and whatever, things, whatever we think we're going to lack when we get to heaven, we're going to be so surprised and so in wonderment over, over how wonderful this glorious place is, especially because God himself is living with us, and we have this intimate relationship with him. So let's go to the next question, why is there evil and suffering to begin with? And you all know the answer to this, but let's walk through it. Evil and suffering entered the world when our first parents sinned and ate from that tree. The beautiful order of creation described in chapters one and two of Genesis was spoiled by sin in chapter three. And this is called the fall, right? Immediately, relationships between the humans and God and between the man and the woman were broken. Also, each human being was broken at war within with competing and opposing voices and foolish, afraid, and ashamed. Have you experienced the war within even this week? Have you called yourself an idiot this week? Have you said to yourself, what were you thinking? Or say, again, when will you learn, Don? There's a war within us. So there's alienation even from within and all around us. The first thing that happens in chapter 4, two, two sons and one kills the other in Genesis. The brokenness is obvious immediately. Plus, we all die. That's great proof of original sin right there. But let me ask you this. Why do you think God put the tree in the garden? That's the question is why did he even allow for the fall? Was it a setup for these innocent childlike people who never had a choice like this before? Was it a setup of God? Why would he put that tree there? If this were a smaller group, I'd, I'd, I'd wait for an answer from you guys. <laughs> but I know I, may, I, may, you probably have a thought, right? Why is it there? See if you resonate with this. Choices have consequences, right? So this is not a big choice. In Quoker Pepsi, right? The bigger the choice, the bigger the consequence. How about this one? I chose pomegranates because apples just get too much press, I think. And we don't know what kind of fruit it was and there are lots of pomegranates there. So this choice, do I wanna eat this fruit or have a relationship with God? Hmm, do you think that'll have implications? Do you think that'll have consequences? Do I wanna please my flesh, have what looks good to my eyes, and possibility of being like God, knowing all things? which God said, I would die, but what does God know? This is a big choice. And the ripple effects of this choice, because it comes down to me or God, we're finite, God is infinite, and we went with the finite. And I, I still do myself, it's so silly, it's so stupid. That's why we confess our sins, and he's faithful and just and can forgive us our sins. We are his children forever. If you have come to Christ, if you have placed your faith in Christ, then you are his forever, that's wonderful. The consequences of the fall can be understood as both temporal and visible and eternal and invisible. So we'll walk through this real quick. Well, sorta quick. Um, We could spend a semester on this, but think, think about these two categories, temporal and visible. That is things that happen in time, that's temporal, right? Things that are happening around us today, and visible, okay, like somebody's suffering. Uh, Somebody just got diagnosed with cancer. Those are temporal and visible. But then there's the eternal and invisible things. You, You can't see these things. Temporal and visible consequences of the fall, two categories. So we'll take the temporal first, moral and natural. The stuff that people do and the stuff that happens that insurance companies call the act of God, acts of God hurricanes flooding fires etc moral conf- consequences like murder lying deception and oppression and natural consequences like diseases drought and disasters diseases drought and disasters so first let's look at the temporal result of the fall moral consequences now if you are, if you think well wow, this is kind of boring well really this is about you <laughs> and about me Okay, so we're talking about you. You wonder, what makes me tick? Why do I say, you idiot? Well, I'll, I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why I say, Don, you were unkind to Anne again. When will you learn? Come on. Okay, this is about me. This is about you. Since the fall, every human being has the natural propensity to sin, including jealousy, greed, murder, lying, abuse, cruelty, stealing, laziness, gluttony, and arrogance and selfish pride. Maybe I left something off the list. I don't know. Every child born into the human race since the fall will experience moral failure. Even knowing the right thing to do, people will not do it. And knowing the wrong thing to do, they will do it anyway. It's kind of a brain damage. Did you know you weren't supposed to do that? Uh-huh. Did you do it anyway? Uh-huh. Why did you do it? I don't know. That's, that's crazy, right? So we all have... Um, We all have the tendency to do the wrong thing like a car parked on a downhill slope. Now what's gonna happen if you take the foot off the brake here? You just roll down. Now that's a picture of kind of our sin nature. You don't have to even touch the accelerator. You just have to take your foot off the brake. That's how easy it is. That's our propensity, our tendency to do the wrong thing. Are we as bad as we can be? No, but we're as bad off as we can be. I'll say that a couple times here. So, the car ends up going the wrong way. Christian theologians call this the sin nature. Um, A great author, young pastor from England named Andrew Wilson wrote wrote a book called If God, Then What? He says, if something had gone badly wrong between humans and their creator, and for some reason a relationship that was supposed to be beautiful had been broken and had gone sour, then I'd expect it to taint everything. And I would say to you, wouldn't you? If something goes wrong between people and their creator, wouldn't you expect that to affect everything in our life? He goes on to say, I'd expect the world to be filled with greed. Why? As people tried to replace God in their affections with stuff. I need more stuff. My security comes for more stuff. I need another. Uh, If I don't get that latest Apple watch, I won't feel good about myself. I have the next latest, by the way. And insecurity, you would expect because the perfect love that God gave them, security had gone. And competition, as people tried to define themselves in the absence of God, desperately seeking validation from somewhere. And they're in my way. It's a competition. Conflict, then, as that competition threatened people's security. So insecurity, greed, competition, and conflict. You would expect all these, those things to happen. I'd expect people to cope with the lack of the knowledge of God by, what? Searching in a panic for experiences that would fill the void, yet always winding up disillusioned because nothing on earth could do the job. Matthew Perry passed away last night, right? Had a a long struggle with drug addiction. I worked in, for 17 years, doing open forums, or Q&As, really, in, in treatment centers. Uh, Two, a a woman's unit, a men's unit, once a week each. And it's amazing how the only thing, the only thing that so many of them, they've been through rehab after rehab after rehab, but until they found one that could fill that void, fill that need for security and satisfaction and, and, uh, and all that they're looking for, the only thing that would fill that void would be God. And we saw amazing changes happen in people's lives. Because unless you can fill that God-shaped vacuum, you will not fill it with just other things, experiences, drugs, feelings. This doesn't mean that we are as bad as we can be. I want to emphasize that. People think the, the Christian doctrine is that everybody's as bad as they can be. No, we're, we're as bad off as we can be. We could be worse. But all of us are as bad off as we can possibly be. Why? Because even a little strychnine... In a clear glass of water, it poisons the water. Even a little sin in our life prohibits a relationship with the holy God. And that's why Christ came. He came and took on that sin himself and died so that even the punishment he took on himself. So that's the first temporal consequence, moral consequences, evil consequences. People, that, people do bad things wars included, natural consequences, difficulties, delay, disruption, deterioration, disasters, human loss and property destruction from earthquakes and volcanoes, drought, hurricanes, fire, flooding, diseases of the body and of the mind, tragic accidents and death. And I think you can find this promised, actually, predicted in Genesis. Genesis 3, 17 and 19, you know, after the fall, after the choice to, to eat the forbidden fruit, God comes and comes to Adam, where are you, Adam, right? What have you done? And all that conversation. And you know, how many of the, there are four entities there, the earth, Satan, the man and the woman, how many of those does he curse? He doesn't curse the man and the woman. He curses Satan and he curses the earth. Interesting, Right? He curses the land itself. Curses the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. It's going to be hard work. You're going to be frustrated. There'll be delays, disappointments, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth you. It'll be painful. Maybe you could have walked through a bed of roses before with shorts on and not get cut up. (laughs) Now you wouldn't and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground, here's death, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So even the earth itself experienced the impact. Now this story is one that takes some faith to believe. Do you believe the scriptures? One reason I believe the scriptures is because Jesus rose from the dead and he believed the scriptures. That's the big first reason for me. Uh, but, but if it's not this story, then what story explains the way the world is now? Both wonderful, with a little bit of heaven, and hellish, with a little bit of hell. What other story puts it together like this one does? You know, the whole Eastern religions believe that evil is an illusion. Christian science is kind of the Americanized version of Hinduism. I went running with a guy who had a, a bad ankle but he ran and he he limped, but he didn't have a bad ankle. He was a Christian scientist. He wouldn't say, I'm sick, I have an injured ankle, because evil and suffering are an illusion. What Christianity does, it doesn't downplay the awfulness of this world, but it also gives credit to a God who's creator, who creates beauty as well, and we experience both all of our lives. Romans 8 As Paul sees it, Philip Nancy writes, as Paul sees it since the fall, the planet and all its inhabitants have been emitting a constant stream of low frequency distress signals. We now live on a groaning planet. Does that ring true to you? Does it feel like that way to you? That there's just this, this low frequency distress signal all the time, every time you open the news. Imagine the scenario. Okay, vandals, this is from Yancey, vandals break into a museum displaying Picasso's works. Pablo Picasso, one of the greatest, at least recognized great artists in the world. They splash red paint on the paintings and slash them with razor blades. It would be unfair to display these works as representative of the artist. The same, he says, applies to God's creation. God has already hung a condemned sign above the earth and promised judgment and restoration. And then he goes on to say something like, "And it's only because of his mercy and grace that he hasn't destroyed it already." He is waiting. He's waiting." So those are the temporal and visible consequences of the fall. Does that kind of make sense? So the fall means that, that that's an expl- explanation for moral evils, um, sin against each other, and then also natural suffering, diseases, etc. So what are the eternal and invisible consequences? This, although invisible and more subtle, is the most serious consequence of Adam and Eve's sin in the Garden of Eden. And you know what that is, right? I think you all know, and that's why we're here. The most calamitous result of the fall, spiritual alienation from God. Because of Adam's sin, the relationship between the human race and God was broken. God is the king, the sovereign, and sin constituted rebellion against the king of the universe. And because he is holy, There was now a relational divide between God and the human race. This alienation is the eternal death of the once intimate partnership with God. So what did God do about it? The son of God stepped into the world, took onto himself human nature by being born of a woman. On a Roman cross, he paid an infinite penalty because he is God. He can experience death because he is fully man. This saves us now from the eternal and invisible consequences of sin. This is far more dangerous. Why? Partly because, it, you know, cancer ends when you die. But alienation from God, unless you have Christ as Savior, goes on forever and ever. You see how much more serious that is, though, even though you can't see it. We see the effects of it, but we don't see it. The earthly devastations of sin will be removed completely by Jesus Christ as sovereign when he returns. This will save us from the temporal and visible consequences of sin. So when he came the first time, he saved us from the the invisible, eternal part. Here today, we sit in fellowship with the holy God in Christ. Someday, he'll rid the world of the consequences, all the moral and natural consequences In the meantime, and until he comes again, God desires that every individual come to know him through Jesus. Which leads to why doesn't God stop evil and suffering now? Why doesn't he stop it now? A few reasons. Would we know there was a problem without evil and suffering? He can use it to draw us to him. I know of a couple who came to Christ because two toddlers died drowning in a swimming pool next door. What was the connection? They didn't even really think about God. They went along their young lives without really thinking about God. God was irrelevant to them. But then when this awful, this horrible thing happens, they have another neighbor named Charlotte, a friend of ours who's a Christian, who had signed up to go on this 5K walk with this couple. And in that conversation, this couple just bereft, angry at God. Why would God allow this? Started a conversation about God. They came to an open forum series soon after. And through that discussion came to know that Jesus Christ was truly who he said he was and they accepted Christ as Savior. They came because of the, this, this loud, this loud signal that something is wrong in the world. We tend to talk to God more in our pain than our pleasures. The human spirit, Lewis says, will not even begin to try to surrender self-will as long as, it, as all seems to be well with it. But pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to arouse a deaf world. It's hard to believe that the world is a cocktail party when a third of its people go to bed starving each night. It's hard to believe the purpose of life is to feel good when I see teenagers smashed on a freeway. What's interesting about this time since the Gaza-Israeli war broke out the horrible attack by Hamas on Israel and then, then this war. Is that now people are talking about something really meaningful, what is wrong with the world? What is wrong with human beings? Why are there wars? It's been a part of our discussion on Sunday nights with atheists and agnostics and people from different faith backgrounds, Muslim, even Hindu neighbor coming. Philip Yancey cites Helmut Tilica. He says, there is a hospital chaplaincy. There is no cocktail party chaplaincy. <laughs> Why don't you have chaplains for cocktail parties? Because people are happy, but they certainly are in hospitals. And people who have never talked to a pastor will be glad to talk to a chaplain. A few aren't, but most will because they need somebody who talks about God. Sometimes murmuring, sometimes shouting, suffering is a rumor of transcendence, that the entire human condition is out of whack. He who wants to be satisfied with this world, who wants to believe the only purpose of life is enjoyment, must go around with cotton in his ears. Great book, Uh, Where is God When It Hurts by Yancey. Another reason God hasn't removed suffering, we would settle for partial removal of evil. When He eradicates evil from the earth, He won't do it partially, He will do it completely. He won't just get rid of the evil bugs us or that disturbs us he'll get rid of all evil and he's going to do that completely also he's waiting for people to respond to him he is purpose, purposely gathering in those he knows are to be his second peter 3 9 look at this passage the lord isn't really being slow about his promise the scoffers had come and said where is he where is this second coming where is this cleaning up everything And Peter's writing, the Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he's being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. He's not being slow. He's being patient. Reminds me of uh, sitting in our van. We have four kids. When they were little, being out in the driveway, ready to go someplace, and one of the kids in the back says, Daddy, let's go, let's go, let's go. Come on, come on, come on. I say, Mommy's not here yet. Oh, okay. What they mistook for slowness um, was really patience. I was waiting for somebody else who I knew would be coming. God is waiting for people to come to him. Fourth reason, he can use the hurting who have hope to help the hurting who don't. Great passage, Second Corinthians, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with we, which we ourselves are comforted by God. You have been a comfort to people. I know many of you sitting here have gone through suffering, have received God's comfort, right? And have been able to pass it on to others. Some of you are recipients of their comfort. That's one of the reasons God allows us to go through this, to see the special nature of God's comfort. Because like Johnny Erickson, I'd rather have that and still have the wheelchair. Five, the last one, we know there's a last act. We are living in a third act of a four act play. Remember I told you about the man Rick, my friend Rick, who's actually our Kansas City area director for Search Ministries. When their son, Mac, took his own life, he wrote a book called Mac and Jesus. I'll show you a picture of the cover in a second. I would recommend it for those who have been suffering grief or loss of a loved one, especially a child. It's an amazing book. And in it, he said, he's the one who says this we're in the third act of a four act play. If you walked out of Star Wars before the Death Star had been destroyed, and therefore called Star Wars a bad movie, what would we say to you? You walked out too soon. You missed the great victory. You missed the destruction of evil. We're in the third act right now. Don't walk out on God. He has a fourth act coming. No other worldview has the promise that there's a fourth act coming. They don't even talk about acts at all. It's all randomness, chaos. Things happen. Revelation 21, beautiful passage. Remember I said there were just two chapters at the beginning, two chapters at the end that don't have sin? Listen to the beginning of the first part of the last two chapters. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men and he will dwell among them. And that's the best part. And they shall be his people and God himself will be among them and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Why? Because there will be no longer any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. That's act four. We're still in act three. And we can tell people there is a plan, a grand plan. I can't tell you why this particular suffering is happening, but I can tell you why suffering in general is happening, and that it won't last forever. God is waiting for you to listen to his call to come home. So, conclusion and encouragement. For I consider, in Romans 8, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Think about that. To me, it's a gauge as how wonderful heaven will be with Jesus, because how awful is the suffering in this world? What's going on right now in Israel? What's going right now in Morocco? The families that have lost loved ones in Maine? The depth of grief. If it's true that the sufferings like that are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us, It's like someday you'll realize this. You'll get there and say, ah, ah. It was all worth it. God redeems the evil and suffering. He uses the evil and suffering. The worst thing that people could do to God would be if God paid a visit to the planet and we crucified him, right? God comes to our planet and we kill him. That's, That's bad, but it's also the best thing that ever happened. Because of that, Redeeming that cross means that we can have an eternal relationship with God forever. It's pretty wonderful. This is a picture of of my friend Rick and Mac when he was a teen. He died at the age of 24, by the way. This is Rick now. Um, Just a wonderful guy. Wrote a book called Mac and Jesus. Finally, I want to just read you Rick's conclusion. God is with Mac when he was with Mac when he died. He could have done something. He could have stopped it, and he had the power to step in, but he didn't. I am learning to be okay with not knowing why God allowed Mac to die when he did. God says, "Be still and know I am God." He didn't say, "Be still and know why." I can trust him to run the universe, and I can trust his sovereign plan for getting us from act 3 to act 4. Until then, I pray that the life and death of my son will inspire you to know more fully the life and death of God's son so that through him you may experience life to the full. I guess my prayer for you this morning is that as we look at this horrible, difficult question, may it lead you deeper into an understanding of how much God loves you, what he did to take on this great problem, and to solve it in a way that's eternal. That's how much he loves us, that's how much he loves you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for, um, thank you for the work in this, uh, just this whole time, this hour, where we're worshiping you, where we're not afraid to, to notice and to lament the evil and suffering in this world. And whenever we talk about this, it's amazing how worship comes out of it. Because we are given the chance to say no to our creator. Why? Because freedom is required for love. And you gave us that freedom to even say no. And in that, you took on our own sin, that rebellion, and died for us. Lord, you are so kind and so good. You didn't have to do any of that. We know the whole story, we thank you for the Bible. We thank you that we can know someday everything will be good. In fact, better than Eden. You'll be in our presence in a very visible, tangible way. And right now, I pray that your presence would be known to us as we feel your love, feel the depth of this truth, and Lord, that they would, that all of us would see the scriptures as your truth and and trust in you and if we haven't come to trust in you as Savior maybe this will be the day Lord guide us and thank you for all those around us that love you and praise you together in Jesus name Amen